Welcome to the show. In this one, I have a conversation with Alaskan author Don Reardon. Don attributes being an author to his experiences and upbringing in rural Alaska. When he was a kid, he and his family moved to a number of small communities in southwest Alaska. There, he dealt with the loss of friends to suicide, drug and alcohol abuse, and going missing. As a youth and as an adult, he made sense of this real-life horror and tragedy by turning to creativity. He says that has allowed him to explore and embrace the darkness, both figuratively and literally. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribed to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine and pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed at the company man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Okay, back to Don Reardon. In addition to his fiction work, Don has also co-authored two nonfiction books, Never Quit with Jimmy Settle and Warrior's Creed with Roger Sparks. Both Jimmy and Roger are former pararescue men, or PJs, with stories of perseverance, wisdom, and heroism. Both books detail the path that led Jimmy and Roger to become PJs, and the extraordinary experiences that made them who they are today. Don says that when people have experienced that kind of high-level, intense trauma, we have to listen and learn from it. So here he is, Don Reardon. (laughs) This red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! You said earlier that you had to run up to your house to grab headphones. So where are you now? I am in what my wife and I are calling Camper U, um, the University of Camper. <laughs> we, <laughs> we're both we're both professors, and we've uh, we've had to ad- adapt and adopt, and and so we turned our camper into our remote teaching place because um, our house is small and our kids are loud, and so at times it's freezing. But uh, I got I turned the heat on a couple hours before we <laughs> to come in here today. So yeah, yep. I'm down in our our camper's a little R pod. Oh, that's great. So how far away is Camper U from your house? Just far enough to make our Wi-Fi sketchy. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, probably about, oh, man, 30 yards. Yeah. Okay. So it, it's a little bit of a walk. Yeah, yeah. And we live up in Bear Valley, so 
you know it's a walk that you might encounter a moose on the way home or <laughs> it's not very far but it's yeah uh and and it's it's hilarious to be in here when the wind's blowing because it's just rocking it oh i'm sure I, i'm very familiar with uh bear valley i actually have a bear valley tattoo nice <laughs> yeah <laughs> i, I kind of grew up up there um my parents had a house over in upper o'malley for the longest time but um a number of my really good friends grew up in bear valley so that's where we kind of hung out and got crazy that's awesome so you you saw early days of bear valley because we've been here We've lived up here in the valley, oh man, um, almost 16 years, and the change is crazy. Like just the number of houses and and how much it's grown is really wild, but it's still a great place to live. For sure. I feel like areas like that in Anchorage or just in Alaska in general become like domesticated. You know, you you get some of those kind of, um, I guess for lack of a better term like outsiders coming in and they treat it like it's a subdivision oh yeah rather yeah. than kind of what it is yeah yeah for sure and it's really interesting because the people who do that don't integrate into the community and realize how, like what great people live up here yeah and um we just went we went through a crazy thing this year where my wife um, was diagnosed with cancer almost a year ago not today, but like within a week of today, a year ago. And uh, man, the community that came together, our friends up here, just, it was so amazing. We had um, so much support and just the things people do for you, you know, like when you need a little bit of extra help. And it's it's nice to know that that still exists. Mm -hmm. As a kid, I would not have known that existed in Anchorage at all. Because if you live in rural Alaska, you sort of hate Anchorage. <laughs> really? Why is that? <laughs> Um, because it's a place where people, if so like rural, you know, like rural time, life is a slower paced and, you know, it's, it's kind of like cheers. Everybody knows your name mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, acknowledges your humanity. And then when you come in from the bush to Anchorage, you're, you're not only always dropping tons of money because that's what you come here for. You come here to, you know, do your shopping, but also go eat and maybe go catch a movie. And so you, you come here, the pace is really fast. No one cares about who you are or what you're doing. Um, and then you leave exhausted and broke. <laughs> so, so it sort of creates disdain. <laughs> do you remember the first time you made your way to Anchorage or you, you traveled there with your parents? Oh boy, that's a really good question. So I I was born in Montana, um, and lived there as a kid, and then moved to Alaska as uh, like first time we moved to Alaska, I was in second grade, um, and so, but we lived in the country in Montana, really. So Anchorage would have been a huge city, but we just skipped right through. Mm -hmm. So all I knew of Alaska was the village, um, save for a little short stop in Bethel. And then when I went from the village to Bethel, that was like going to New York City, it felt like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then and then Anchorage was kind of another iteration of that. And so I didn't really uh, spend any time in here at all until I was in high school. And so then I wasn't with my parents and it would be coming in for basketball trips or some sort of sporting event. Um, or if I like broke broken arm, come into 
get it checked or something like that. So those trips were always different. But yeah, I certainly remember I knew nothing of this city um, other than malls, restaurants, movie theaters. That was kind of all we did. Uh, and then if we came in for sports and we were traveling, then you would get in a in a van and drive to drive around and you could never see anything because the windows were always fogged up and frozen over. So I just really knew nothing about Anchorage at all and never and never really thought I would live here and love it either. So do you remember, I don't know, was there like a moment where you kind of fell in love with it that that it broke that barrier between kind of this other place that people from villages or rural Alaska have disdain for and all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's kind of a part of you now. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a fun question. So I think, I think it was a gradual sort of awakening, but I remember one of the things I remember was when we first came here and I was in grad school and I was loving kind of the, the access um, to the outdoors, which sounds kind of strange, but when you're in rural Alaska in a place like Bethel, um, which was where I had, you know, I grew up there, went to high school there, and then I was teaching high school back there. Um, the access, your access can be limited. It's it, You're relying on snow machines and boats and you're really kind of stuck out on the tundra and, and when I was coming here then I could go biking and hiking mountains and so I was kind of falling in love with that and so I do I remember uh, I guess this is a semi-interesting story about that I was walking on the trails with my mom and the one of the like the coastal trail or something and I was probably trying to kind of convince myself how much I love the place mm -hmm. at the time and maybe trying to convince her a little bit too and I said I was like yeah and so these trails they just extend all through the city. You can just bike anywhere. And then the winter you can ski anywhere. And, and she brought me back to earth with, yeah. And people still shit in buckets <laughs> in rural Alaska. And it sort of brought me back to earth. Kind of always like, don't forget your roots kid. Mm -hmm. You know, that there's, there's a disparity of wealth here. Um, but I slowly just became, fell in love with, uh, there's, and part of this is just being working at UAA as a professor there. It was so diverse, so many people from all over the planet with such amazing stories. And we have such good food. And I think I just slowly really began to appreciate that. Even as I would travel outside more and travel to different places, like I can, you can get some amazing cuisine here. And people don't believe that until they come and, and try it. You know, I think they're surprised that we have what we have here. So I, I feel fortunate. So growing up in Bethel, what did that look like? Oh, man. So I lived in uh, a village called Gasigaluk um, in junior high. And when we were going to make the move to Bethel, that was just like a scary prospect for me. Because again, it was like moving to the big city. <laughs> and so, and to, to put that in terms like, listeners can understand you know when you're living in a little village where you have a couple classmates and you're the whole school I don't know at the time might have had I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 people maybe more than that um, and then you're you're put into a place where your classroom has that many people or the hallway has as many people as the whole village 
between passing times, that's really daunting as a kid. And the life was just fast paced and kind of exciting in Bethel, but at the same time, uh, intimidating coming from the village. And so, yeah, that transition was really interesting and awkward to me at first, but um, I fell into it and it was a great place to grow up for me. I was really lucky. I had a great group of friends and we we kind of chose a creative route to stay out of trouble. There's definitely trouble to be had. And um, I was in sports, so I was active that way. And I was in academic uh, events, so I was active that way and got to travel a lot with school. So that let me see the world a little bit, the outside world a little too. But um, we felt, my friends and I fell on music and um, the radio. We had a radio show all through high school, a late really? night radio show. Yeah. The Kevin, Ralph and Don show every Friday night. Oh, that's 12 great. To two. <laughs> yeah. So then I knew the power of radio, which was really fun. And so we, yeah, we kind of turned to creativity to stay out of trouble. And that, that was a good, uh, a good move for me. And I, I just never let that go. Um, but at the same time, man, the loss, enormous loss of friends, you know, to the epidemics of suicide and drug and alcohol abuse and missing, going missing. And yeah, you know, like, so it came with a cost, but um, I wouldn't be the writer I am today or the, or the educator I am either. I don't think without those lived experiences there. You know, I don't have I don't have a question written down about this, but what you just said kind of struck a chord with me because growing up in Alaska, I think there is always that element of darkness, right? You have you have like the literal physical darkness, but then also kind of the darkness that gets inside you and that you kind of become one with or you become more familiar with. And I think that those those moments or those tragedies that you live through or that happen in your world, like friends committing suicide or getting hooked on drugs, you know, juxtaposed against that, like, you know, forever winter. I think that it just kind of gets inside you and kind of makes, makes us who we are. Oh yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think. And it makes us who we are, those that those of us that live through it, right? The the survivors of it, um, and you end up bearing like survivor guilt just because you can do that, you know, because you can see your way through the darkness. There's there's Seth Kantner, one of my good buddies, and I think probably arguably one of Alaska's best writers has has a oh I, I'm so bad at like quoting lines from anybody, <laughs> and I would just totally butcher it, but but he basically says you know that darkness that we survive that we that we have to kind of get through is the price that we pay for our summers mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> you know because because they're just so glorious and so amazing all the hours of daylight but man yeah you got to get through that darkness and there is definitely a weight that we bear um i like how you say that kind of that internal i think for me exploring creativity was a way to deal with the darkness but i was also in love with it as a kid i wanted to um scare people i wanted to write stuff that was scary and horrifying and 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 so i i think i embraced the darkness and i i think that actually probably helped me in a lot of ways so you wanted to be a horror writer earlier on 
Yeah, yeah. I wanted to be Stephen King. I wanted to be the next Stephen King. I even, I've never said this on radio. I think I've maybe, or on recording, or told anybody this where they could document it. <laughs> um, but I, I wanted to, I wrote Stephen King. Um, I wanted to be him since I read The Shining going into third grade. So I was maybe nine or something. Um, and I just, instead of being terrified by the book, I was in love with it and wanted to just do that, you know, scare people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I read all the books of his, I could find, get my hands on. That's what I wanted to do. And then, um, yeah, I wrote him a letter in boy, probably either eighth grade or ninth grade asking if I, if he would mentor me. And I had some cheesy line, like, the greatest day the the America's greatest day of horror will be the day you retire <laughs> and, and you need to, you need to mentor somebody and it needs to be me. <laughs> and, and, uh, th thankfully he gets so many letters that that was hopefully recycled or just burned. Um, I got a form letter back like months and months later, but, um, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was that's my crazy admission right there but but actually what's kind of interesting two things that are interesting about that um when my novel the raven's gift came out in the u.s it came out at the same time that his son owen had a book come out mm -hmm. and and so we were kind of like sharing notes on on social media that was it was kind of funny and i was like oh, okay so like you know i get i get that connection <laughs> through his son um but later that stuck with me that idea to write authors and ask for help and um you know like later on it it I, it led me to having a mentor who was uh really powerful and and really um took me under his wing and and helped me grow as a writer for sure and so it was it's kind of funny it wasn't Stephen King it was it was uh somebody in kind of a whole different realm of writing and I think um it's neat to see those two things kind of coalesce, I think, in, in my work. So how do you think that your writing has has evolved? Do you feel like there's still horror elements to it? Yeah, yeah, that's that's for sure. Like your question made me kind of realize that a little bit where I wanted to be the next Stephen King. I wanted to scare people like that. I don't, I didn't, it, I didn't even want the fame or the money or anything like that. It was just about how cool would it be to have people reading my work and be really scared. And then, um, the mentor that took me under his wing, Daniel Quinn, the author of Ishmael, he, um, his work is about saving the world and, um, a lot of focus on the power of indigenous cultures in terms of the message and what we can learn from them. And really like that's, a, that coalesced into a lot of my work. So like the Raven's gift is a scary novel, but there is this other element there where I'm using the, the elements of horror to make it a, an exciting story, but really trying to push, um, some ideas about the power of indigenous culture, specifically Yupik culture the culture that I grew up with and what we could learn from it and how we could save the world that way. When do you think your writing started portraying indigenous cultures? Oh, for as long as I've been really probably writing near complete sentences. Cause that's, that was what I knew. Uh, so yeah, second grade was when I first lived in the village. And then from then on I was, 
for lack of a better term, kind of infected with what I had learned, you know, a lot of it was learning, actually, ironically, we're in this pandemic now and learning about the devastation wrought from the earlier epidemics. And the, you know, there was elders in the community who had survived through it or who had been in, um, who had lost family members and grew up in orphanages because of the previous epidemics. And so, um, yeah, I think from then on I was, and mostly as a young kid, you know, like, okay, so I'm, I'm hooked to the Stephen King stuff, but at the same time I was hooked to oral traditions of the Yupi culture mm-hmm. and other cultures in Alaska, if I could hear them, the scary stories of monsters and ghosts and man it's there's nothing cooler when you're a young kid who likes uh scary things to live in a culture where those scary things aren't a joke you know um Mm -hmm. our in our american culture um scary scary stuff is just also just kind of a joke um or it's it's just a entertainment but in in indigenous cultures you know the stuff that's scary the monsters the ghosts the spirits the those lessons to be learned are real and they transmit real valuable, important knowledge. And, um, as a kid, you know, you're, you're too, you're too enamored with the monster, the idea that the monster could really be out there, but that's okay because you're still learning the story and then you'll eventually start to learn from the story. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a, that's a really interesting distinction between being out in a village, which is, much more isolated than a place like Anchorage and you are a fan of Stephen King. You're a fan of horror and you're also learning and knowing these indigenous stories of monsters. And so I feel like that horror is much more real for you than it would have been for someone like me in Anchorage. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's so, that's fascinating. Yeah, I think it probably was. Well, I mean, I can add to that. We, every time we, every village we lived in, we were in, in like the school housing, which would always be in the school or in some big old scary building. And so I was always living kind of like very quite literally living in some sort of haunted house. Mm-hmm. And and uh like whatever people want to believe about that stuff when you're when you're living in a place where everyone in the village says it's haunted um including the people that work there you know that's that's some crazy shit mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and uh yeah so i i think um the it really adds to it adds to how you live you know like there's times where even as an adult remember once when i was i was high school teacher living out in Bethel and there was somebody who had uh, gone missing. And so in that, in the Yupa culture and in several other Alaskan cultures too, this is, this, this is uh, also very true to the cultures that if somebody goes missing, there's a fear if they don't find the body that that person has gone wild. Um, and it's kind of returning to the earth in, in a, in a way that's not, that's not natural to humans and is scary. And, and so there's somebody missing out there and here I'm an adult and I'm out skiing on the tundra and, um, it's getting late at night and kind of dark. And I'm like starting to wonder, you know, what if, you know, yeah, you know, you're, you're smart enough to know like, okay, it's probably not going to be true. I'm not going to run into this guy 
but but what if you know that there's yeah. that <laughs> this thing lingering there so um and i wouldn't say that that couldn't happen well and i think that growing up in that culture with those beliefs i think that it adds much more authenticity to that storytelling because you understand it so intimately yeah yeah we had a story so there was when when we were growing up there was uh everyone would talk about this kid named gabe fox and he was at the children's home um outside of outside of queethlook the village of queethlook there's this big and now it's a big kind of scary abandoned building alaska has so many great ones like that and he had the story was when that was an orphanage and that he ran away he ran away from the place and they couldn't find him and he went wild and so when we grew up it was always these stories of gabe fox gabe fox is out there and maybe people seeing him once in a while and it was just one of those scary things you added to I could tell around the campfire or if I was uh, traveling with my basketball team as a coach, um, I would tell those scary stories at night to kind of get the kids to calm down and go to bed and not want to run around the schools. Yeah. And and then later, one of my students, um, former students and now friend, and she's a journalist out in Bethel, Katie Basil, she was doing some really cool photography of the children's home and she's looking around and she found the paperwork that like the person running the mission, the orphanage um, about Gabe Fox running away, you know, like, so here's this verifiable, like he was a real boy. He did run away and they couldn't catch him. They couldn't, they kept seeing him and they couldn't find him mm -hmm. um, or catch him. And so, yeah, it's just like interesting how all those things kind of coalesce in, and you know, he's, he was, he would have been an orphan because of the epidemics that hit there. Yeah, that's interesting how there's just so much crossover. Have you found that you are more or less spiritual as you get older? Oh, wow. Yeah, probably probably more inclined to um, ruminate on it and think about it more. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm definitely someone who looks to the land and the animals for some sort of guidance or meaning. Um, not really into organized religion or any of that, um, but very much interested in the, the, the idea of like what spirits are and what, what can they tell us and some of that. And, and also just kind of trying to reconcile, like, what does that all mean? Mm -hmm even just trying to make sense of like the haunted schoolhouse we lived in. Like, does that mean that like when you're a teacher and you die, you still have to keep working <laughs> haunt the place? You That's know? horrifying. Like, it is that, that is horrifying. That's yeah. Yeah. So like wondering about that stuff, like, what does that mean? Um, and, uh, a, a great Alaskan writer who just died last year, um, in Sherry Simpson, she was one of my mentor teachers when I went back to grad school and I was writing about one of the scary village houses that we lived in. And, and clearly I was just writing to scare people and kind of tell this story that, haha, you know, I lived in this haunted house. And then she sort of asked me that question, like, so what? Like, okay, you know, like, this is great and it's entertaining and, but like, so what? And, and then, um, I found myself getting like actually scared, you know, 
in thinking about that idea like what does it mean like why why were those things happening and and yeah then it got scary to me i don't know if i ever was able to translate that to the reader but man it it did spook me thinking about what does all that mean did it scare you because it was maybe a question you couldn't readily answer yeah yeah i think so i think so i think that was part of it you know we one of the places we lived in my mom had she she could explain away everything that would happen you know from uh doors opening closing and lights going off and on it was like a generator issue and there was wind that was from the winds blasting through these weird tunnels that were connected to our house that created vacuums and that's why the windows and doors opened and closed she just had all these explanations all the time when something strange happened and then i was like 25 and sitting around with her and um, she, she said, I, I was like, what about when we were living in the village? And she's like, that was the scariest year of my life. And <laughs> <laughs> she was just like bullshitting us about the whole thing that uh, she was just coming up with excuses to, and, and I was like, how could you do that? Why, why, why would you do that? She's like, cause I didn't want my babies to be scared in their own home. And, yeah. uh, and, and yet there we were with these weird things. Yeah, I saw a filing cabinet open right in front of my face, um, unassisted. You know, I'm in a room all by myself, and across the hall, across the room, the filing cabinet opened up, and that's when I ran in and like told her, like, I just saw this happen, and she she was just like, oh, that filing cabinet, it always opens like that. It just just had a. She's like, that's why I tape it shut and like nonchalant. And then later, I, I you know, I look in there, and sure enough, there's some tape on it. It's closed, and there's some tape holding it shut. And, that was my mom. That was the kind of woman she is. Like she went in and taped it up. <laughs> Do you remember what was inside that drawer? No idea. I was not brave enough to go look. <laughs> you know, I guess the reason why I kind of went down this line of thinking and I asked you if you think that you have become more spiritual the older you get is because I think that the longer, you know, we're here on earth as humans, you know, as we've we get older, we just encounter so many different things that are unexplainable. You know, uh, in 2014, my mom had this, um, this heart event and her heart just stopped and they put her in, like they basically, you know, brought her body temperature down to, uh, I think like 30 degrees. And I mean, she was so cold to the touch that we just were like, she's going to die. You know, she's, this is done. She's done. And, you know, as the days went on, they tried to wake her up three different times, two times unsuccessfully. She woke up and her heart was just like, you know, hammering. They were just like, she's going to have a heart attack and she's going to die right here in the ICU. So they put her back under. Third time was a charm. She woke up um, and doctors and nurses were walking around the ICU at Providence saying things like miracle. So it was just, you know, it's it, it's those things that... You experience as you get older where you're just like, I have no explanation. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, that's wow. I'm glad that story turned out well. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's some crazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think in terms of kind of like pondering that spirituality of stuff, for me, it's, it is, it's, it'll be kind of a life pursuit to kind of look look to see like, what can I learn, especially, especially from the other cultures mm-hmm. that, that have 
that that aren't so quick to dismiss um, beliefs. And and I I don't want to be one of those people that ever does to just dismisses people's beliefs and and will explore it and be open to it because there's just so much to learn in that itself. Mm-hmm. And then just it's what we face, right? It's like the we all face that curtain call, and <laughs> as it comes closer, like you would think, people will either ponder that more or maybe just try to enjoy life a little bit more too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there is, there is worth in longstanding knowledge and considering history. You know, I think that it is kind of the mark of a very ignorant person to dismiss cultures that have been around for thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when those cultures transmit knowledge from generation to generation where that's where I just, it's, it's, it's been, I feel so fortunate to grow up the way I have to kind of understand that and see it firsthand and then kind of reflect upon like, what do we learn in our kind of standard Western American culture? What do we pass on to our kids um, and to our grandkids? What do we learn from our grandparents about like how to be a human being? And, and it's sad, you know, like we, we don't learn a lot uh, that's that teaches us about not just to be good people, but like how to live, like how to, how to be a real person. And, um, yeah, there's so much there to it and so much that we have to be so much that we can gain from learning about, about some of that. And some of it's really simple things and it's embedded in those stories. That's, what's also kind of cool about those cultures is they share the knowledge through a story instead of saying, here's what you have to learn, kid, you know, because whenever, whenever someone says, here's what you have to learn, you just like check out. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I kind of want to ask this because I've been moving it around. I wrote, this is the last question that I wrote down, but I want to ask it before we get too far away from, you know, your affinity for horror. So the movies you wrote, <laughs> there's a horror movie called Claude, the legend of Sasquatch. (laughs) And then there's skid marks, which is like a raunchy teen comedy, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like those are both very different genres. How did, how did they come about? Um, well, so I was in grad school when I wrote those. So that's my like caveat there of those, but you know, the, the Claude's a Bigfoot movie, so I'm not going to, uh, make any excuses about that um because again i grew up in a culture where that creature that 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 being is very real mm-hmm. <laughs> and is very much a part of the culture and a part of the land part of alaska um and so i'm really fascinated and wish with with uh that whole situation there and i wish the movie would have um you know reflected that a little bit more <laughs> but it was just a campy bigfoot movie um, and there was, yeah, this, um, I can't make any more excuses about that. And then the, uh, I mean, I, I definitely have kind of a dirty sense of humor and like, like to joke around. Um, not afraid to do that. The, that came through the, that, that came about through the same director that did the Bigfoot movie, which, um, is also sort of goofy and yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I guess I am the, this, the skid, skid marks was a, just, 
kind of a joke, but it was it was a good time, especially in grad school, to write something like that and see it get turned into a movie. And then the act, to get a hangout with the actors and uh, it was a blast. I'm I'm not I don't regret it. I it didn't it didn't age well. It's not PC at all. It's just horrible that way. Um, but it was fun, good times. I I now like you know if any films that I make now are not going to be like that. I think once you have some kids, um, and kind of the 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 weight of the world is on you. Like I don't see myself writing skid marks too. <laughs> <laughs> no skid marks too. No skid marks too. But I I do see myself writing a horror movie again. You know, like I I I love especially an Alaskan one. I would love to do something like that here. What? What kind of themes? Oh man, I could I could go on and on about the possibilities. I like the ideas of uh, of how um, these these scary old buildings that we have here, especially ones related to like World War II, mm-hmm. the old bunkers, and and then there's these old mission schools and orphanages that are just out on the tundra. They, I love that idea of of somebody you know, maybe in a bad situation and they, they have to hide out there for a night to, to, to try to find comfort and they're not going to find comfort there. Yeah. Um, you know, some of, some of that, um, I don't want to give away all my ideas here. Let's see. What's another recent one I had. Um, the, the animal ones are interesting, you know, they've been played out too much. The, the ideas of, of wolf attacks and bear attacks and, mm-hmm. and all of that. But the, the classic stories, the indigenous stories of, of, of monsters, um, there's some scary stuff that I would, I think would be really neat to see brought to the screen. Um, but ideally it wouldn't be me. It would maybe be one of my students that's from that culture. You know, I think that would be the, that would be the penultimate to me to have me get to help teach 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 a kid to to do that you know to to bring those stories to the screen so it's not just another i mean another white guy bringing a traditional story to life like it has to be it has to come from the culture for it to really be scary i think what horror movies would you or do you look to for kind of inspiration oh man i don't think my my wife is gets so scared. I haven't even got to really watch too many horror movies lately. Any of the new ones, I haven't seen any of those. Um, I like stuff that's more subtle. Um, and I mean, I think back to like some of the. I I don't know. I don't think I have a good answer to that. I don't think the contemporary horror slasher kind of stuff is is at all what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. More of psychological stuff, I think. Um, you know, like things like Bird Box, <laughs> you know, like stuff that's that's um, going to just be more intriguing in terms of the the character's struggle instead of just the surprise got you stuff. For sure. I think that the movie that comes to mind for me would be something like Hereditary. I'm not sure if you've seen that. So no. that movie, I think a good... A good way to explain that movie is that it is extremely terrifying throughout, but the terrifying moments are very subtle. So it's very much like The Exorcist in a lot of places. So it's 
it's one of those movies that just really gets under your skin. Cool. I might have to check that out. Yeah. I think I, I, I just, I want to go back to those movies that are scary because they make you think and make you worry about your own sort of circumstance and, and not just the um, crazy gore and the effects that they can pull off. Mm -hmm. For sure. I don't know if I've ever said this on the podcast. Maybe I've said it on one or two, but I am a, a huge horror fan. I have watched horror movies since um, the first horror movie that I ever remember watching was I was, I was a kid. I was super young and I remember I was sitting on the couch with my dad and he was flipping through the channels and I was like, wait, go back. What is that? And it turns out it was child's play with Chucky. <laughs> and my dad's like, are you sure you want to watch that? I'm like, yeah, what's, what's that all about? And then, so like I'm sitting on his knee and then he like picks me up. He's like, do you want to get close to it? And I get close to it. And I remember like not being super scared, but being like excited because of like the horror <laughs> element to it. And that's what my mind always goes back to when I think like, you know, what, when did I get broken? And you know, like, uh, you know, why do I like horror so much? Because my wife, a lot like your wife, probably it sounds like she cannot watch horror movies. And I found this out in college. Um, and I think, what was it? I think it was this really, really terrible movie called, uh, gutter balls, which actually is like, <laughs> part porno <laughs> like it's 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 really it's a really trashy terrible but also kind of awesome horror movie um really gory so it's more of like a slasher type flick um but they do have like porno actors in it um anyway she watched that and she just kind of like snapped at the end she's like i don't understand why you like this shit you know <laughs> I was like, oh. I'm like, oh my gosh i'm sorry i thought we were enjoying this and so that was like <laughs> the last horror movie that she really watched with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't even remember the last one that I watched with my wife. That was even remotely like that. It was maybe the ghost, a ghost one with Nicole Kidman or something, the others or mm -hmm. something like that. I think that was about the, the closest. Yeah. I like, I guess that would be the kind of the, the more, yes. Yeah, on the spooky side or something to make you think, you know, mm -hmm. six, sixth sense kind of stuff. I have a script that's never been really seen the seen the daylight or gotten any traction anywhere. Um, I hadn't tried really hard on it, but it was it was about it was based in semi reality of um, or or hist historically I guess, and it was about uh, a German POW camp that we had in Alaska. Very few people know we had one of those there. So we had this Nazi POW camp in southeast Alaska um, that was built by. Aleuts or Unangan people who had been interred, not interred, but had been relocated um, from the Aleutians when the when World War II started. And we basically took, just ripped people out of their village homes um, on the Aleutian chain and then dumped them in southeast in these old canneries. And and uh, it, it didn't turn out well. I think like 10% or more of the people died of you know, on our watch in those canneries. 
Um, but of course, the the Nazi POWs in there in the camp that some of the Aleuts had built um, were held by Geneva Convention standards, so they didn't die. They had they had a cantina and all of this. So my idea, my movie's idea, the script that I had written was it's called Ghosts of the Camp, and it was two guys escaping to go hide out, and they're hiding out in a place where the Aleuts had been, and it's haunted. And so they're haunted by what they've done in war, but they're being haunted in this in this big old scary uh, cannery. And if you've ever been in one of the Alaskan canneries, the old ones, like it's they are spooky in it in and of it of it themselves. So that's the kind of stuff like I I want to see that kind of movie made in Alaska. You know, absolutely. I think that there are so many different, really great original stories that could come out of Alaska or that can come out of Alaska. Um, you know, I read this book a while back and I'm, I, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Maybe, maybe it's just called Alaska by James Mishner, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. so I read that book a while back and there's this really great quote that I always remember and I don't even know where it could go. Maybe somebody listening to this can like put it somewhere, but they have these like stories, right. Of these pioneers kind of like throughout the book, you know, as they're describing like the land and the indigenous people that have lived on the land. And then the first Westerners to, you know, see the land. Anyway, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on in this book, but I remember this one part about this pioneer guy who I think that he moved to Alaska for gold and he had this cabin like in the middle of nowhere you know he he's just surrounded by woods and he ended up dying like penniless he didn't find any gold but the last note that he left was bury me here where i failed hmm. and i always thought that was that was so great that's a great line yeah <laughs> that's a great line that reminds me of a uh, um there's Oh, I can't remember what the book is called. It's a it's a nonfiction book that not very many people have read about um, kind of a miner that lived in southwest Alaska, kind of in the mountains between Bethel and Dillingham. And there was a there was someone there. I think his name was Klutuk, and he was killing the miners there. And like I don't know if he was cutting their heads off, um, and he would go and and rob their rob their cabins and it would be it would again that would be another one that would make a great horror movie mm-hmm. so they would find these headless bodies they'd go into the cabins and find the the miners headless miners <laughs> headless miners that sounds like the title of a 1960s scooby-doo cartoon <laughs> the headless miner <laughs> actually you know i think there is one called miner 49er <laughs> that's great i'd watch it Uh, yeah my kids are huge scooby-doo fans so they would watch it too i actually have that box set with all of the with all of the 1960s scooby-doo movies or not movies but television shows so it's the um it's the mystery machine and it's got all the the dvds packed in it oh that's so great my kids would die for that they yeah because the I don't know if you watched any of the new Scooby Doo's, um, they're horrible. <laughs> they're just so horrible. 
Well, I think it's the animation though. I mean, I love that old animation. Yeah. yeah, I do too. I do too. Yeah, I miss that stuff. Everything's too uh, smooth and flashy and fast now too. I think they do that because it's easier. You know, they just kind of input some stuff in a computer and then it kind of spits it out. Hmm. But that could just be me like completely <laughs> simplifying it beyond belief. <laughs> it makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah. I have I, I draw stick figures, so the last thing I'll do is say anything about anyone's art. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> okay, so kind of moving on to your work with Roger Sparks and Jimmy Settle. So the these books are biographies or autobiographies that you co-authored with both Roger and Jimmy. How did, how did that come about? Oh yeah. That's kind of a fun story. So Jimmy, everything always comes back to Bethel. I had a friend say that once like that, that it's kind of like Kevin Bacon. Bethel's kind of like Kevin Bacon where (laughs) everything is seven degrees of Bethel. Um, so one of my friends from high school was dating this guy who worked at Skinny Raven and it was Jimmy and I got to know him through her and we, we just became buddies and he, he was just this goofy guy who was so much fun to be around and he had all these crazy stories. He was always like, uh, for example, like we're, I, I got some crab from somebody gave me a bunch of crab and I was going to invite him over. And he's like, yeah, I don't eat crab. And I was like, who doesn't eat crab? Are you allergic to it? And he's like, no, I had a bad experience with some crab once. And back when I was in um, in school, and I was like, that's a weird thing to say. And so I was like, what, you know, tell me more about it. And so he goes on to tell me this story about when he was at the Naval Academy and some plane had crashed and they had people, they they took the the cadets out to go diving to help recover bodies or something and he 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 came across some crabs that were eating people or people body parts Mm -hmm. um and so this is my introduction to this jimmy settle guy and so we became good buddies and he would always be sharing these crazy stories with me and he just had this huge backstory and he and 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 of course this comes back to skid marks I'm doing the movie Skid Marks and we're joking about like, I was like, we should tell your story, you know, like, cause he, he told me this story about when he was, oh, I said, I was like, how do you get, you know, clearly he's, he's um, working at Skinny Raven and he was kind of worked his way up to manager there, but he was, uh, he was, he, I'm like, he were in the Naval Academy, like what happened, you know? And so he tells me a story when he has, a, he has a heart attack mm-hmm. when he's running on Harvard track or something. Right. And, and um can't can't stay in the naval academy anymore because he gets his gets his heart fixed but he's out and then he's that kind of leads him to skinny raven and he's back there and so we we were joking this whole time about i should let's let's turn your story we called him shoe guy and i was like we'll write a comedy kind of like skid marks about this shoe guy and so every time we'd get together drink some beers and laugh about shoe guy because he he was just this brilliant guy and he was stuck in this position like literally at the bottom of people's you know he's beneath people he's subservient to them on his knees putting shoes on people mm-hmm. while they're talking on their cell phone and you know just being totally disrespectful to him not knowing you know what how brilliant he was or what he'd gone through and so 
so we were like okay we just we couldn't figure out what the shoe guy story was and we kept playing with this idea over and over and joking about it and then he starts hanging out with pjs and most people are like what's a pj and um, when he tells me about this i'm like what's a pj and he's like oh man they're just like these great guys and they're pararescue guys they're the guys that would rescue you off of denali or you know out in the bush if you had a problem and he starts working out with them and pretty soon he's going to uh try out for him and then pretty soon he's a pj <laughs> you know yeah um, that's a long-winded long long way around the story that he tells but um so the shoe guy story led me to be the enamored with these the the pj stories because i was he would come back from all these trainings and tell me tell me about just the stuff they would do like almost drown or one guy died or blew his knee out he comes back one time after blowing his knee out and i kind of spent some time recouping at my house and and um but then he goes on to become a pj and so then i was like wow now we have a different story this isn't shoe guy anymore this is cool mm -hmm. <laughs> you know like this has become something else and um so then when he would come back from trainings or whatever if he was here in alaska being a pj then i was like let's i'm gonna tell that story i'm gonna tell your story and he's like okay cool sure well then fast forward a couple years and my wife and i are watching nbc nightly news and it's you know it's here i'm lester holt and in afghanistan and my wife screams she's like ah it's jimmy and here's jimmy <laughs> on our on our tv screen in our house <laughs> you know we're about to eat dinner and he's got a freaking bandage on his head and um, he's with lester holt in, and there's a hole in the bottom of the helicopter that he has signed almost got me jimmy with the date on it Oh my and, gosh. And I'm like, it's Jimmy's in my house and he's been shot. And a week earlier, um, I was, I think I was in, I was on vacation in Hawaii or something and got a call from him and he's in Afghanistan. He had just gotten, a, I'd sent him a copy of my book, my, the Raven's Gift, and he'd just gotten it and he was all excited. And, and so I hadn't heard from him, right? So then he's shot in the head in Afghanistan. <laughs> and I'm like, holy crap, this is crazy. This is his story. Yeah. Um, well, he comes back and and um he's injured and he's not going to be a pj anymore and i was like dude i'll help you tell your story and he just he wasn't there yet he was like no uh, no way man I'm, I'm out um and so i didn't hear from him for a while and finally gotten back in touch with him and sure enough um he was actually actually uh, let me re rewind for a second there i i was angry um I was mad that our country could take somebody like him, this, this, he was like an Anchorage golden boy. I mean, here's this kid who was like state champion runner, mm -hmm. um, turn him into one of our finest, like those pararescue men who work here are just extraordinary. They're, yeah. you know, like their motto so that others may live. Um, they're all, they, they don't want to be called heroes, but you know, like they are all heroes just for what they do every day. Mm -hmm. And and it's just that's part of their day job. That's their nine to five. And he becomes one of those and then gets injured. And they're like, thank you for your service. You know, we're just like we do that to all of our combat veterans, really. And I, I was angry about it. So what does a writer do when he's angry? He writes a really bad novel. <laughs> so, <laughs> so so I wrote this like knockoff heist novel. Um and and it has at its core it has this injured injured pj who 
who has to go like rob a rural gold mine <laughs> for these bad guys. And, uh, and, and my agent reads it and he's like, this is really horrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but who are these PJs? What's a PJ? And so I tell him this story about Jimmy and he's like, get that guy on the phone right now, call him up, tell him you want to talk to him, tell him you want to help him write his story. And I was like, I've already done that. He's like, just call him. So I called Jimmy and he's in a better space and his, his life had turned around and he's like, yeah, sure, dude, let's do it. And so that was how we wrote never quit. Um, and we started working on it and I went to interview Roger because he plays a pivotal role in Jimmy's story. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I go to Roger's house and hang out with him and you've interviewed him. You've hung out with him. Like, yeah, there is nothing like that on the planet no. to talk to that man is I'm the, the closest. Um, what I felt with him was an instant kinship that I think everybody kind of feels because he is such a special human being. Mm -hmm. um, but there's, he has what I see in the eyes of the elders that I've worked with who have, who carry with them kind of the wisdom of the ages. And Roger's one of those people. And I left that. I, I, as I, as I left, I gave him a copy of the Raven's gift, um, kind of as a thank you. And I knew he liked to read, but I didn't, I didn't think, you know, he'll never read this book. I was just like, I just wanted to offer like a, some kind of thank you to him. I brought him, brought him lunch, but some Thai food, but I, you know, like I, I just, I needed to give him something out of thanks. And so I leave this with him and, and said, I said, you know, if you ever want to tell your story, I, I'll help you tell it. Um, and he's like, yeah, I'm not interested. Um, <laughs> or he might've even said something like he's not interested in war porn or something like that. Okay. <laughs> um, then that made it really clear that it's kind of like, you know, F off dude. <laughs> he wasn't saying that, but, but um, yeah. So that was kind of it. And, and then like, I don't know, man, couple weeks later middle of the night i get this text from him that he had read read my book and um he's like you can help me tell my story <laughs> oh man that's great yeah yeah it was really really powerful message that i i don't even i've saved it and i've read it a few times since then and and it's just one of those things like i'll never share it with anybody but it was a prof profound moment and then i was like whoa like this guy's story i had I knew it was phenomenal. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's, yeah, yeah. It was a real, really a challenge and a treat to help him tell that story because it's so powerful and it's challenging that it's just his, he, no one's lived a life like that guy. <laughs> it's amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know how often this has happened or if it's ever happened to you, but when you've interviewed people and you know that you're in this like special moment, you know, that you can, you feel, you know, getting back to that, that spiritualness that, that you just kind of encounter as you get older, you know, that you're just a part of something maybe that you can't fully explain because it's, it's a feeling. It's like a brand new feeling that just kind of overcomes you. And I had that definitely interviewing Roger, definitely interviewing Jimmy Settle, um, and definitely reading both of those books that you helped author. Uh, Roger Sparks's book, 
Warrior's Creed and Jimmy Settles Never Quit. And I read those last winter. And I remember I would read them before bed. And I had this, um, this like ritual. It was, I didn't realize that I was doing it until maybe like halfway through, um, Roger's book. And what I, what I would do is I would turn off all the lights in my room and I would, you know, read on my Kindle and I would open my window on my side of the bed enough so that you got this Alaskan breeze that would come through and you could kind of like smell the air. Hmm. I used to live in downtown Anchorage, Fairview, and you just kind of, as I'm reading about these guys jumping into the Cook Inlet, I'm like, I can smell it, you know, <laughs> I, I'm right there. Oh, you that's know, awesome. I just, it was, it was such a, it was such a great experience reading those books. That's really fun to hear. Yeah. There was a, I can't remember what the term was that Roger called it para, parasynthetic, parasympathetic, something. I can't remember what the term is, but it's essentially that where you're, you're feeling it, right? Like somebody's talking to you and you start feeling it and it's that your skin starts to prickle and yeah, you, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. When those guys tell you their stories, they, you feel them. Yeah. It's really magical and, and powerful and, and important too. You know, I think when people have experienced that kind of high level intense trauma, we have to listen and learn from it. We just don't have a choice. You know, I think it's, it's our responsibility. If we're, if we're, if we're willing to send people, train people and send them to, into those sort of situations, then we need to also deal with it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's been, it's been really interesting. Um, you know, never quit was really, really, you know, hit the top of the charts and people, um, it was received really well. And, um, and when Roger's book came out, I just, I was ready. I was like, this book, this is a book that everybody should read. And, mm-hmm. and I'm biased, of course, you know, but I'm like, I know it's good. I know this book is powerful and important. He's, he's got some really important things that for everyone in here, it's not just for warriors and not just for combat vets. Um, there's a lot of takeaways that are meaningful in this and, and, and it, you know, it, it did okay, but it was definitely not like topping the charts or anything. And, and I, I, I was kind of, I was angry about that, I guess. Um, (laughs) not for my own sake, but just like this story needs to be out there. Mm -hmm. And recently, uh, it, I think what it took was it, it was, it would, it would happen on Roger's terms and, um, and it has, and that's just really great. It's great to see it now, like where it belongs at the top of those war, all the different war charts right now, not just war, but even biographies it's blown up cause he's working with go ruck and it's the book of the month for them for February. And the theme is love. And yeah, it's just, man, it's, it's it's just one of those stories that I knew in my heart it it would help people mm-hmm. and now it is and so it's just some redemption I guess because I think I I, I didn't want to be angry that it wasn't getting the love that it deserved and now, now it is and that's just a, it's a really great feeling yeah it's interesting to see what 
grabs hold of the attention of of the masses. I know that I have produced certain podcasts where I'm like, oh, this is this is going to be it. A lot of people are going to like this one. Um, and then all of a sudden it, it doesn't do as well as I initially thought it was going to. But then maybe like a year later, all of a sudden it resurfaces. I'm like, wow, like that, that conversation was a year ago, but all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's being listened to a lot right now. Yeah. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I, I don't know what that is. I think, I think that it's just one of those things where, you know, people find it when they need it. Yeah, I think that is. And I think, too, people's bandwidth is so jammed up right now. Um, and that could have been part of it, too. You know, like, it's it's about timing. And and if you talk to Roger, like, stuff happens when it's supposed to happen. The synchronicity. Mm-hmm. And the it, it wouldn't have meaning if it if it didn't happen when it's supposed to happen. So um, I, I you just got to roll with that you and listen to that wisdom, I guess. Patience. Yeah. I always have to remind myself about patience because again, you know, the longer that we're on this earth, the more that you start to realize or you begin to realize that, you know, the elders or your parents or your grandparents, like they were right, you know, (laughs) just, just keep doing the work and have patience and it will come. Yeah. Yeah. And, and enjoy the process. I think that's, yeah, exactly. that's something I've learned like to, to not just always rush on to the next thing, like enjoy the process and grow from the process. Um, that's, that's something that that's definitely working with Roger with Warriors Creed. That was something that, you know, like from the get go, he made that clear, like that this is about the process of us doing this and that it's going to be difficult and it's going to it's going to sting sometimes. And, um, and it did. And, and yeah, it made us both better people, I think. Mm -hmm. When do you think you learned to get comfortable with or appreciate the process? Um, that's another fun question. I think, I think I've always enjoyed. So when I write, I live it. Uh, which is kind of a strange thing to say. But so if I'm writing something that's scary, I'm scared at the time. I am feeling it. I'm in it. I'm seeing it. I'm in that world completely surrounded by three 360 degrees. Um, if I'm interviewing Roger or Jimmy and they're explaining something about sitting in the helicopter, I'm going to ask them the details that will fill it in all the way around 360 degrees with all the sensory details so that I'm there and, and ultimately like start dreaming it myself and feeling it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think I've always enjoyed that part of the process. Uh, as a kid though, I would bang out a story and I'm done. It's just like, peace, I'm out of here. I got, you know, it's done. Like, yeah, just start sending me money, (laughs) (laughs) which is not how the publishing world works. Um, and, but I always, I was good enough that I could get by with that until I got to grad school and I had a professor who was tough on me. And, um, I turned in my first, very first novel as my grad, like to finish grad school. And he was like, uh, rewrite it. You need to rewrite it. And, 
and I'm like, I'm graduating in two months. And he's like, no, you're not. <laughs> and I said, Re rewrite it. Oh, I said first, I was like, rewrite it or revise it. Cause I was hoping you saying revise it. And he's like, rewrite it. Um, cause I hated the revision process. Um, I didn't ever want to go back into those stories. Cause I was like, I'm done. I felt it. Right. And when I went back, I couldn't feel it again. I couldn't feel that magic. And so then, so I went back to rewrite it and I did, I was so angry. Um, and I rewrote it. I was like, it's going to be totally different. And I went and relived the story, but lived a different one. And, and I realized something and that's when I started like enjoying the process more. Mm -hmm. um, and figured out that I could revise a story and go back in and feel and look around and find more things. And so each book that I've written, I've sort of done that on another level. I've just grown each time. Like I can go back, I can revise it. I can go into a scene, see it again, hear it, smell it, taste it. Um, and so each time I think I've just gotten a little bit better at doing that. And so that that's, and I think that this has been, it's, it's, I think I'm always going to be a work in process with my writing and storytelling, but, um, yeah, I think it really started in grad school there where something clicked and I wasn't so sloppy or relying so much on, on just like surprising people or tricking them into thinking something's good. Mm -hmm. Um, then it, you know, cause then it's just genre crap and people read it once and they'll never go back to it. Uh, I learned then to slow down. And so I'm still, I'm still a work in progress, but I'm learning from that. And then working with Roger, where it was more about like the, the process, it's okay if the process is a struggle too. I was never used to it really being a struggle. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that was a good learning experience for me too. Didn't Stephen King say in his book on writing Oh, that the book. most oh it's it's excellent that the most important part of writing is rewriting yeah yeah and that he will kind of hammer through a book the first draft and he'll put it away in like a cupboard and then he'll come back to it however many months later and only about 10% of it is keepable yeah that's crazy <laughs> Yeah, I think I would cry if only 10% was keepable. But yeah, I think, um, yeah, there's definitely something to that. For me, the magical part has been to realize that I could, and and I had, I had some kind of cool experiences like this with the Raven's Gift. It was the first draft was really dark, um, which is hard to believe because it's a pretty dark book. And I when, I when it came to I needed to revise it, there was an editor at a, one of the big publishers, I can't remember, Harper Collins or somewhere. She really liked it. She wanted it to be a little lighter. She's like, there needs to be a little more hope in it. And I already thought there was enough hope, but she wasn't seeing it. So I went into, I was like, okay, if I'm going to make this have, have hope, I'm going to go into the darkest scene in the book and see what I missed. Mm -hmm. um, and and it changed the trajectory of the novel just instantly. Cause I went into it and I, I looked around like, so in terms of, that's what I try to teach people about revision. The, the, I got to trademark this, but it's, I break it apart into re envision. So you see it again. And so by going into the scene, I saw it again and I saw what I had missed the first time. 
and and then it was like whoa this is a new book and then that that ultimately shaped the final draft of what it, what the book turned out to be isn't it great when you become more and more receptive to kind of critical analysis mhm yeah yeah that's uh that's really key i uh, i think too too many artists are too too unwilling to listen to criticism and learn from it and that's where i was lucky with the mentor that i had daniel quinn man he was tough he was really tough he was if you've ever read ishmael if you haven't read ishmael read that's an amazing novel um he he was the gorilla and i would bring something that i thought was awesome to him and he would and he he played and i do this as a professor i teach from the same paradigm as a, i'm your coach not your not your professor or not your teacher not your mentor and so he was my coach and so i would give him this beginning to a novel that i thought was killer and he would just blow it apart um <laughs> just just like just drop a bomb on it and i could be mad about it but i could see he was 100% right and 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 he could even sense that and he would just be like you know like as your coach i'm telling you if i'm your baseball coach i'm like you know pick your elbow up and do this and you know like keep your eye on the ball this way and and you would take that advice and so i really learned to take that that perspective and perspective and look at it look at when people have criticism what can i learn from it and then i teach from the same paradigm too so that my students realize i'm coaching them just trying to help them make them better and it really it's really successful it makes them feel so much better about their work and they understand our relationship in a different way and um it's transformative and then for me yeah i i'm so lucky i have so many writer friends who will look at my work that it's and, and give me constructive feedback. One of my friends who's a local writer, I, I love his work, um, Shane Castle. He has he has uh, a, a novel everyone should read online for free that he just put on a website. Um, it's called Moby Dork. And it's, <laughs> um, it's, it's the Moby Dick of zombie novels. And it's amazing. He's an amazing author. And he will, uh, he'll take my novel like, he had an early draft of the Raven Sift and he would just call me names on it, on the manuscript. Um, you know, like he would write on one place. He was just wrote like, don't be a pussy. <laughs> cause, cause he could tell, he could tell I was backing off on the scenes. Like I was writing these graphic scenes and then I would cut out of them. And, um, yeah, he called me names right on the manuscript. And, uh, <laughs> and so when I went to revise it, I knew to, I needed to go all in. Yeah. What do you think that did to you when someone's calling you names like that? <laughs> um, it, it was great. It's when you know that someone has skills above yours or has vision that you don't, or someone has put their effort into giving you feedback, um, you got to take it. Mm -hmm. And so I never felt bad about it. If anything, I laughed and I was like, oh, he's totally right. You know, <laughs> like, because he's seeing through the the veneer of bullshit that I was putting down. And so then I had to get real. And I'm so grateful for those people because the book wouldn't be what it was without that, you know?
it wouldn't be a book that's studied in classes and is curriculum and used in college classrooms too. So before we get into this, this final line of questioning, I wanted to let you know that I just bought the Raven's gift as we're sitting here talking. <laughs> That's awesome. Sold another sucker, sucker born every minute. <laughs> No, I'm excited to start it. That's okay. I haven't read it either. (laughs) (laughs) It comes with a 100% money-back guarantee that it makes great emergency um, fire starter or toilet paper. (laughs) Unless you bought the Kindle version, which you're out of luck. I actually did buy the Kindle version. (laughs) But what I actually do is, uh, I mean, with a book like this, is I will buy the Kindle version and then I'll buy the physical version. I'll probably, actually, preferably, I'd like to buy it from you so that I can get it signed. I could maybe make that happen if we can find copies of it. It's Sometimes it's hard to track down, but I think there's, uh, I think it's maybe back in stock. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So I wanted to move on to something that might, be sensitive so let me know if you're you're comfortable talking about this because if you're not we can totally just just move past it sure but your wife annette right yeah yeah was diagnosed with hodgkin's lymphoma last february and then after months of treatment the tumor in her chest disappeared i've been reading about the upsets and the progress of the experience through your social media and your blog And I think there's a lot of reflection, hope, sadness, encouragement, and appreciation in those entries. I know it would probably be impossible to explain everything that happened over those months when Annette had cancer, but I'm wondering if anything in particular comes to mind. Oh, yeah. Wow. A lot comes to mind. Um... It's been one crazy roller coaster for sure. You know, to we went, I, I was just reflecting on this the other day because we went to Seattle um, right when the pandemic was shutting everything down there mm-hmm. for her second opinion. We were going down for a second opinion and we, we asked, we're, we're so fortunate because we have so many friends who are doctors and nurses and she's a nurse herself and a nursing professor and just asking all these really brilliant people, like, should we risk going down there um, to see if we should get a second opinion or just, you know, somebody who will say, you know, do your treatment in Anchorage. Like there's no reason to be anywhere else. And this is while I was watching this. I, I, I had headwind of the pandemic in China early on, you know, I was watching that worried about it. It was like, here it comes, you know, it's what I wrote about in the Raven's gift. And so yeah, so we're in Seattle and it was it was creepy, man. The streets were empty. Um we drove my cousin had a place on Mercer Island and we drove from her place to downtown in like 5 minutes. <laughs> you know, it was just a ghost town and got and so we were there when this was all kind of kicking off and so it was really surreal to think it's been a year and here we are in and this historic moment where America leads the world with loss. Mm -hmm. And so I feel, 
really like guilty even talking about our own experience, you know, where it's been sure it was tough, but we're alive and we're healthy and she's healthy. And so it's, yeah, I feel, I feel kind of silly talking about it. Um, it's not difficult to talk about it all. And I'm happy to very happy because it turned out okay. But yeah, it was crazy to, to ultimately they decided we could get all the care we needed here in Alaska. Um, the doctor there just agreed and, but it was to think back on it. We're like, we're there in a doctor's office at the Seattle cancer Institute inside an office, shaking hands with the doctor sitting across from him with no masks on, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then come back here and, and things just really start falling apart around the world. But what was, what was a trip or ultimately like pretty scary was just the idea that she started chemo in March last year, really intensive. Cause that's the one thing like, when she got cancer and they found out it was Hodgkin's lymphoma, everybody's like, Oh, thank God. You know, it's like the cancer to get <laughs> like, um, only because the treatment usually works. Right. So, okay. Okay. So we're like, okay. But then they're like, but the treatment sucks, <laughs> you know, like it's a really aggressive treatment. Oh, I see. Like it, it's, it's effective, but it is taxing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you're you're better with the wordsmithing than me on that for sure. Um yeah, it's it's just pedal to the metal. They they wipe you out, wipe out her immunity. They she was neutropenic, so she had zero immunity basically to anything. Um which is scary. Yeah. But at the same time, the pandemic is sort of a blessing to us because everyone is having to be safe, you know? Yeah. Um, and our kids weren't going to school. So our kids weren't in the hot zone where everybody's, um, you know, my daughter is in preschool and preschools are just like germ. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're ground central for every funky disease on the planet. <laughs> so we were really kind of insulated and everyone was washing their hands all of a sudden and everyone was, um, being safe. And so that actually helped us, you know, it was, it was stressful at times, but that helped us, um, everybody's, you know, like social distancing and being careful. And so, yeah, she, but she's, it, it's all on her, man. She's a trooper. She mm -hmm. got blasted with chemotherapy and we would just still walk every day, put in miles every, every, we were climbing the mountain behind us, um, as much as we could, she would just push through all the chemo and then, uh, yeah. And then the next thing was radiation. So then we had to go to Seattle for that, for proton radiation. And yeah, man, she just, she pulled through it. So yeah, it was just, it was really amazing to get, uh, get her results. I think we got them in November. And so this giant tumor, it was, it was the size, roughly the size of a, of a bagel inside her chest, pressing against her heart and lungs. Jeez. And now that thing's, now that thing's gone. Yeah. So it just, the way that our doctor, Dr. Lou at Alaska Oncology, really amazing doctor, he was, he just, he was like, this, this will just melt. It's just going to melt away. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and it did. Yeah. So we're really fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. But it was tough. And then, you know, I, the irony is not lost on me that the main, the, the character in my novels a guy with his wife trying to survive through a pandemic, <laughs> you know, I don't want to spoil it since you haven't read it yet, but man, it was tough. 
just seeing kind of art imitate life or light i guess yeah. in this situation it'd be life imitating art life imitating art and really worried about that i mean i was worried early on i was getting all kinds of interviews about um what were people what was i thinking about when this is hitting alaska and how weird was that to have written a book about a pandemic in alaska and you know like my fear was for rural alaska mm-hmm. where i grew up there's so many places with no running water and and they already have third world diseases out there, you know, like tuberculosis. And we like, this is the last thing we need. And so I was really scared for rural Alaska, but then I'm also up against this fear for my wife too. Like, how do we protect her? Um, There was a few times where, you know, we came into contact with somebody who had had COVID or I had, and fortunately I was wearing a mask and, you know, we were okay. But just the idea that you, I could be the one that could hurt her was pretty terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. That is terrifying. You know, I was, I'm trying to remember, I think it was the last blog entry or the latest blog entry on your website where your wife, Annette, um, wrote the entry and I'm not gonna remember it verbatim. So I'm going to send a paraphrase. She said that she feels like she got a second chance at life. I wonder what that's been like. Yeah, it's been powerful for both of us to, to have that. And I mean, she's, she's being really honest there about that because you get to realize so many things. You, you get to realize how fortunate you are, Mm -hmm. how, you know, in terms of our jobs and, where we live, but also the community of support we have, that was just overwhelming, you know, like people, people we didn't even know sending us stuff, people dropping off food for us and, you know, just gifts that we don't need, but gave comfort. For me, it was really a a, a chance to understand what it means to, to accept things from people, you know, as always do it yourself and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get get along that way and don't don't take help from people um not you know if you don't need it and i didn't know i needed it you know and i think that was true for both of us to like realize like yeah you know sometimes you do need help mm-hmm. and it's okay to take it and that that helps people um themselves you know like one of the key things to dealing with anxiety um or when you're really feeling bad about your own station in life is to help others and understand that even accepting help from other people is, is helping them. And you then in turn, we could do the same thing and help other people who are less fortunate. And so, yeah, it really was, a, and still is a profound, you know, we're coming up on the anniversary of when she was diagnosed and we're just so lucky the other day, we got to go for a long ski together. And a year ago, she wasn't able to keep up she was struggling to keep up like something was wrong and she knew it mm-hmm. and that's what took her into the doctor. So yeah, we're, we're really like living that idea of a second chance. And it's, um, I, th- you know, I think it's something we could all like kind of collectively, like even use this moment as a, of the pandemic saying like, well, there's, we're, we're, go- we're, we're approaching half a million people who didn't get a second chance, you know? And so, we, we, we can, there's some awareness there for all of us, I think. I'm 
I'm really happy that your wife is doing well. <laughs> Thanks. Me too. Me too. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, what what a what a weird year this has been for all of us. I mean, it's like something from a sci-fi movie. You know, <laughs> one of the things that that hit me months back, you know, just kind of meditating on the the pandemic and then the fact that the world doesn't stop. You know, there are people that have to work. There are people that uh, have cancer. There are people that have broken legs, you know, that, that need immediate attention, you know, cause these are, these are life threatening or life altering things that are happening to them. And that doesn't stop because there's a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Just the, all those people, the essentials, I wrote a poem about that, the essentials. Um, hang on a second. Let me see. I'll read that if you're cool with it. Yeah, I think that would be an amazing way to end this episode. Yeah, so this is um, this is from my new book of poems that just came out called Without a Paddle. And it's called For the Essentials. And this was me thinking about those people that you're saying right now that who now for a year they've been sacrificing everything. And, and I, I, I tried to capture that in this for the essentials there will be no medals for you no dinner in your honor no book offers movie deals or dramas capturing your sacrifices your sweat and toil for a nation hungry for chocolate ice cream and extra toilet paper essentials we purchase delivered unboxed stocked bagged no pension to lose no sick leave no funeral fund or insurance against anything. Know this, you heroes. Your selflessness does not go unnoticed. And after the cleanup on Isle America is over, we will find a way to give you the thanks you have earned. You can support local grassroots journalism at www patreon.com slash crude magazine you can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine crude conversations is written hosted and produced by me cody liska for crude magazine music was produced by alcoda beats <laughs>